I, I think that everybody that loves schools or everybody that loves education uh, is a little bit uh, skeptical and critical about it. It's in our hands, actually. This is going back to Mandela's and Ubuntu. It's really in our hands. We can do this. It's up, it's up to us, actually. The world has never been changing more rapidly, dislocating the ways we work, learn, and live. On the Learning Future podcast, we discuss the knowledge, skills, and dispositions we all need for our learning future, exploring insights with world-class educators, researchers, policymakers, and leaders from across industries and across the world. Hello, and welcome to the Learning Future podcast. I'm your host, Luca Parry, and it's my delight to be speaking today with Pedro Cunha. Pedro is the director of the Gulbenkian Program for Knowledge, coming to us from Portugal. He holds a degree, a master's, and a PhD in psychology of education. And he started his career as a school psychologist and then as a coordinator of social innovation programs on substance abuse, community development, and social exclusion. Since then, he's been a program director and the head of education at the Agra Khan Foundation in Portugal and has taught at Teachers College and also served as the deputy director general for education across four governments from 2010 to 2017, where he was responsible for school improvement, early school leaving, early uh, childhood education and care, inclusive education, curricular development, psychology support services, and I'm sure a great many other things as well, Pedro. Uh, he has a wonderful pedigree and has worked as an expert at the European Commission, the UN, UNICEF, and the OECD. And I'm very delighted to be speaking with you today, Pedro. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Let's, uh, I've got so many questions. It's just great to be back with you. Um, Let's start with something you've learned recently, because it's been some time since we've spoken. So what's, what's something that you've learned in this crazy time in which we find ourselves? Well, the, the, the philosophical answer would be, I've learned how truly interdependent we are. Mm. Um, coming to our topic on social and emotional learning, um, I learned how crucial it is to... To, to develop social and emotional learning in children and youth. Uh, because um, during these pandemic times, mm. it was quite evident, quite clear that children that, that had the chance to, to learn to develop on a more, uh, let's say, balanced holistic way, yeah. Yeah. they coped better. We've, we, uh, I've conducted a research on this recently. Uh, we've interviewed 1,000 kids oh, wow. that were participating in uh, some of our programs on social emotional learning. And we assessed how important it was to, to learn these, these skills in these programs and how did they mobilize these skills to cope with the increased stress and anxiety and depression that was coming from the isolation and confinement and remote mm. schooling. Mm. And over 85% of them say, said, it made all the difference for me. And then we also interviewed parents and teachers and we asked the same. And, uh, and the, the answer was in the same direction. So one, of, one lesson I, I got from this pandemic is we, we, we had the evidence. Now we have the facts. We have the reality hmm. in, in, our, in, in, in our eyes. It's brilliant. Uh, uh, let's start. Let's go deeper into this world, Pedro, because it's, it's not as if you've responded to this because of the pandemic. You know, Portugal has been known for a lot of social innovation, be it in things like uh, its policy on drugs or substances, 
uh, and also in education, which is something that I've, re- I've learned through you know, our conversations. Uh, tell us, where did this work kind of begin? You know, what have you, what's the research that you've been conducting? And, and ultimately, what, what, what's the big idea about you know, education systems and the way that we structure them and the environments and the experiences that we create for, for the communities that, that we serve? Yeah, Portugal is, is an example of a country that started way behind a lot of different countries. Mm-hmm. For historical reasons, uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the beginning of this century, the majority of our population was illiterate. And if you go oh. to the 50s, 1950s, over 50% of the population was still illiterate. Uh, And if you go to the 70s, when uh, we conquered our democracy and our freedom, um, like 45 to 50% of the children did not finish the mandatory school age. When I I took my position in the ministry, 28% of youngsters didn't finish high school. Wow. That, that was our early uh, the school leaving rate at the time. So we had to take action. We had to, to, to do something. And Portugal was able to, in, to increase accessibility to school very fast. And we, we managed to do that. So today our enrollment rates are almost 100% in all grades. But, but, that's, but that's the easy part. That's mm-hmm. about enrollment. Then yeah. comes the quality part. It comes with participation. It comes with curriculum development. It comes with relevance. It comes with inclusion, diversity. That's another story. And uh, within that story, in the last 20 years, we, we've, we've introduced a lot of different reforms, trying to you know, increase not only attendance, but presence. When I started working in, in schools in the 19, 1996 as a school psychologist, mm. my first job was to reduce absenteeism. Right. Uh, kids were, were missing classes all the time. They were playing soccer outside or flirting, doesn't matter. <laughs> Today, we don't have any more that problem. Mm. We don't have a problem of absenteeism. We have a problem of presenteeism. Yeah. It doesn't exist, this word, but it's... Kids are there, but, you know, their, their soul is not there anymore. Mm. And sometimes their brain is not, it's not there anymore. So their bodies are there. They behave well. We don't, have, we, ha- we don't have the problems we had in the 80s, in the 90s, no longer. But the thing is that uh, more and more uh, is not about connectivity, which is something that we discussed a lot during the pandemics, my belief is the main problem is connection. It's mm-hmm. not connectivity. It's not about uh, creating the means to, to, to meet people, uh, to meet students. It's about creating the means to engage them in learning. That's the big, 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 big question to be solved still. And in order to do so, we, we tried a lot of different things. So we, uh, as, a, as a country, we strengthen uh, and we, we uh, the, um, let's say, the vocational educational training to attract more people into learning through, during longer periods of time. We made it more flexible. Mm. Uh, we changed, uh, we tried to change the reputation of it, increasing the att- mm. attractiveness, but also the quality and the social recognition with diplomas. Today in, in Portugal, that wasn't the case before. 
But today, if you go to through VAT, so vocational educational training, you will get a diploma that is higher than if you go into a regular high school, as I did and my kids did. Right. It's higher. It's a level four instead of a level three. So the the whole society is recognizing recognize that these people they know more because they know what others know, but they also know how to do something with their hands or with their brains. Um, mm -hmm. so, and another big, big change was a big curricular reform that basically addressed the obesity of Western curricula. It is not only Western. Interesting. Uh, and the, the, the way we tried to address this obesity, because it's like an onion. Every time you have a, a, a new government, it, it adds a layer, layer. <laughs> on, on the onion. And at the end, if you teach for 25 years, you see that the onion is growing bigger and bigger and bigger. Sure. And your time as a teacher is going smaller and smaller and smaller. Mm. And if you add on this that uh, time on, uh, on task, meaning mm. Mm. The, the, the engagement that you can get, the attention engagement that you can get is going smaller and smaller and smaller, then you have a problem. Yeah. So we launched uh, a process of revisiting our curriculum. And uh, we did three very important things. One was, for the first time in our history, and I know Australia was one of the first countries doing this, we wrote down in a piece of paper, what did we want out of the education system? Mm. So what is the vision for this? We don't, we don't mean a law. We don't mean a, a treaty with 500 pages. Yeah. We mean one page. A declaration. Where we said, okay, at the end of... 12 years in school, kids are supposed to be like this, to think like this, to know this, to do this. Mm -hmm. And this was quite obvious, It's quite, but we didn't have it. So after this, the second step was, okay, so let's look to our audience, <laughs> to our curriculum. Let's look to all the layers that we have been adding on year after year. Mm. And let's see what in this curriculum is contributing to this vision, to this one paper. So we divided the contents. We said, okay, this part is contributing directly. Yeah. So this is what we call essential learning. Right. It's non-negotiable. And this part might contribute indirectly or doesn't contribute at all. So this part we call it flexible, the flexible learning contents. Mm -hmm. And then we said to schools, okay, so now out of the school time, you have 25 up to 50% because since last time we spoke, the autonomy has increased. Oh, you're kidding. Wow. So we started with 25. Now it can go up to 50%. So you can use up to 50% of your school time mm -hmm. to adapt, to include. It, this is not about reducing. It has to be, this has to be said very clearly. Yeah. It doesn't mean lowering the bar. No. It doesn't mean reducing content or knowledge or skills. It doesn't mean that. It means making them appropriate for the issues you're trying to solve in the world, <laughs> which yeah. are on that one page. Yeah. So schools started to, you know, innovate. So that they had this opportunity to take their hands on what was going on there. We as a comparison with Australia, we are a very we have a very centralized school system. All schools all schools are funded by the state. Mm -hmm. All curriculum is designed and approved by the state. 
all teachers are trained in and in, in placed in schools by the state centrally. So schools had, until recently, uh, a small margin for autonomy, for flexible, for adaptation, and for creative and to create new contents or to include new contents. So this has been our last two, two decades, let's say. I'm just I'm so fascinated by this idea. Uh, because, of course, it's the idea of mandating something, essentially, but also providing the autonomy at the local level, which, as yeah. you say, <laughs> I think quite well, you know, rather than absenteeism, you know, presentism, <laughs> whatever the word might be. You know, really, yeah. it's the engagement challenge. You know, how do we, rather than create compliance, really unlock creativity or move to this kind of agency-led, self-driven learning for this lifelong learning? you know, of which vocational education training is all part. I'd, I'd love, and the way you described it as well, you know, the obesity of the curriculum is really, it's a really interesting way, you know, we've got to hit the scales, we've got to hit the gym a bit. Um, tell, us, tell us then about the kind of discrete parts of the core versus the flexibility and, and bring in here what you've been discovering through your role now over the last few years at the Gulbenkian Foundation, um, which has been doing some really remarkable work. You know, why... So, for example, if we have all these flexible things we can make as a school community, you know, the principal, the teachers themselves, a student group, parent body can come together to discuss what we want in scope for our school, in our place, in this part of Portugal. You know, what do, what do we know about, like, some of the programs that have been really influential or really powerful as, as part of that? Yeah, it's a, it's a recent uh, movement. And we, as a foundation, we have been quite active promoting uh, research and uh, action in schools. We are funding exactly 100 projects. Mm. We call them uh, academies. They're called the Gulbenkian Academies. And they are being rolled out in all the districts of the country, including the islands. And uh, we focused on social emotional learning. Of course, with this flexible time, you can do a lot of different things. And some schools, they, they added more mathematics or more computational thinking or more mm -hmm. robotics. or Sometimes they, they went different ways. But we thought, okay, this is an area where the evidence is telling us very strongly that is one of the highest returns on investment that you can get out of education mm. uh, together with uh, quality early childhood education and care. Mm. And uh, it has a long-lasting impact on children and also the groups where they are. It's not only about me, it's about me as, a, as, a, as, a, as part of a bigger group. And this is also a, a content, an area where we have a, a lot of goodwill, mm. but not that much evidence made in Portugal. So we wow. had a lot of important uh, <laughs> projects and programs from the States, from the UK, and we felt that there was room for some exploration, some innovation at the school level in Portugal. Mm. So we launched uh, three calls. Uh, I, I have to tell you that the Gulbenkian Foundation, it's, it's a long-standing foundation. We are celebrating 65 years this oh, year. Wow. And, uh, and we are a quite large foundation at the European terms. Mm -hmm. And uh, these calls that we, we opened to create the Gulbenkian Academies in educational settings. I didn't say schools on purpose. So I you see. could create whatever you wanted as long as it was an educa educational setting. Yeah. These calls were the most um, uh, disputed calls in our history as a foundation. 
So we have been giving grants for 65 years. We opened calls in all the areas you can imagine. Yeah. But these ones on SEL were the ones that hit the records. Wow. So our website was, you know, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was uh, freezing up. Yeah, <laughs> finding it difficult to handle all the all the demand. All the People interest. were really, yeah. really interested in, you know, oh, this is something. It makes sense for me. Mm. So we took the chance of the momentum on uh, social emotional learning, and our our big question when it started is how can we? Pre this was of course much before the pandemic. This was in 2018 mm. we started. And the question at the time is, how can we prepare this next generation for change, for diversity, for uncertainty, for, uh, the, for you know, the VUCA world? Mm. How can we do this? So we funded 100 different interventions that uh, for, uh, targeted children from zero to 25 year old, so from birth to the end of uh, university. Mm. And the question uh, we asked is, okay, so how can we do this here in this particular context with these particular people? How can we promote a set of seven skills that we defined? Right. These seven skills were mostly inspired by the work of Cassell in mm -hmm. the United States, of course, not very original there. So we used the, the, the let's say, the grounded theory that they have developed for decades yeah. as a basis for local experimentation. Mm. And uh, we, we reached over 50,000 kids, which in a country like Portugal is a lot of people. Yeah. We don't have that, money, that much kids. In, in the whole school system, we have uh, 1.2 million kids. Right. So in this 100 project, we have 50,000 uh, kids from 0 to 25. And each one of these academies, it's a quasi-experimental study. So each one of these academies has a control group, has a pretest, has a post-test. Post -test. Right. And uh, together with the OECD and an Australian team of researchers, uh, we helped to develop a tool, an online tool, to assess these skills. It, if to oversimplify, we could say it's the pizza for SEL. Uh -huh. And uh, we help bringing that and validating that in, in Portugal. And we are using that tool currently because it's a very easy tool it's a fast tool you yeah. don't need a psychologist we don't, we don't need training to use it mm -hmm. and uh, in 45 minutes you're done so and, and you assess uh, kids parents and teachers and also you can assess the conditions in schools that are favoring the development of these skills and those conditions that are hindering the developing mm. others it's a quite powerful tool actually and I, th I think it's going to be publicly launched by the OECD in the beginning of September. So be, be, be aware because it's be something aware. very exciting coming. Yeah, the, the study into social emotional skills. Uh, exactly. It's, it's, yeah. Um, and I know it's been slightly delayed because of COVID, like everything else. But I th I'm very optimistic about that as a moment in time, Pedro, which I want to ask you about. You know, the, you know for some of us, for many of us in education, all good teachers have been teaching the whole person from the beginning, you know, and it's just, it kind of feels like we've just gone a bit too heavy on the academic narrow high stakes assessment and forgotten about the other dimensions, which thankfully now industry are starting to talk about and lead and say, actually, we need graduates that have this and this. So what are, what are the seven, you talked about the seven skills that you kind of use the, the, the collaborative academic social emotional learning, the castle groundings what what are those kind of constructs if i use that kind of technical term that you've kind of you've shown so that you know like a young kid in a in a 
town in Portugal somewhere, you know, is really knowing that they're developing this particular part of themselves and that that's going to serve them into this unknown future of work and the ongoing future of learning. Like what are those, tell us a bit more about the what of this. Like what are the things ultimately that we're, that across these 100 different projects, which are all going to be unique because of the context, what's the kind of universality that, that you're seeing in, in what's being developed? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one, one very interesting aspect of this uh, network of 100 projects is that we were quite agnostic in terms of, b before coming to what, mm. is in terms of where. Because cool. usually we think about schools. Yeah. Classrooms. Yeah. Always. Which is right, yeah. because that's where kids are most um. of their time. <laughs> and, uh, and this is where, you know, the, the, the change is urgent. Mm. So uh, I'm, the, I'm one of those who believe that we, we, we spoke a lot about education in emergency, but I, I do remember about emergency in education that mm. we had before the pandemics. Mm. So we already had an emergency. We already felt the need and the urge to do something, to change, to, to adapt, to reinvent ourselves as, as, as educators. So uh, I, I really don't think it's fair to say, no, no, we have an emergency education. No, not true. Now we have to, you know, to reinvent the schools, to do it online, blah, blah, blah. You know, that's all very, uh, I'd say, shallow. Uh, we have to go yeah. deeper. And if you go deeper, you see that in the, in the last hundred years, we've tried, we've tried, we've tried. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, innovation is about discontinuities. And there are not a lot of discontinuities within education. You know, the metaphor, if you, if you ask a, a surgeon from 1921 uh, to come to a, yeah, to come to a, a surgery room today, he wouldn't be able to do anything there. It's all automated. It's all IT things. But if you ask a teacher to do the same from 1921 to regular classroom today, he would just give a class. Mm. You, would, you would find strange the way people dress, the way that people behave and so on. But <laughs> you would lingo. give his class, yeah. you know, teach class. That's easy. It's a, it's a great so metaphor. Yeah. What, is, what it was uh, really interesting about this network is that we were quite agnostic about the where. So we had projects on scouts organizations, volunteer organizations, sports organizations, arts organizations, um, volunteering uh, organizations, agriculture Anything you can think of, of course, schools, universities, mm. kindergartens, crashes, everything you can think about were good contexts to test how can we develop these skills. So one th thing that we've learned is that really this is something that you learn as everything else. You learn anywhere, any time. The second thing we've learned is that you don't learn this cell uh, anyhow. So you can learn them anywhere, anytime, but not anyhow. Ah, cool. So we learned a lot out of these 100 projects. What is really making the difference? And there are some variables there that are explaining results. Mm. One variable is, like, now I'm going a little bit technical. One variable so is dosage. Do okay, dosage. dosage. Yeah, right. We've learned that those interventions that they do, because we, we demanded for this application that they have to come up with a, a very strong theory of change. They have to come up with a, an idea that is tangible for mm. a jury to, to select that, 
that, that uh, application. So they had good theories of change. So it, it made sense. The way they wanted to promote, it made sense. But at the end of all this experimentation, we learned that dosage is very important. So if, if you think that you can develop critical thinking or creativity with, uh, let's say, 45 minutes a week uh, for one school year, forget it, you're not getting there. Right. We are coming, the, the results are not there yet. Uh, we are now doing the, the analysis, but we are coming to a situation where we see that shorter interventions are more powerful than longer interventions, oh, wow. which is something new yeah. for us at least. Uh, so instead of thinking on a school year, okay, think on, think on a trimester. Right. And instead of having one hour a week for a school year, Think about having more time during a shorter, more uh, intensive period. Shorter point, yeah. This is one. Yeah. The second one is uh, being a standalone project versus having it transversal within other stimulus that can be curriculum stimulus or other stimulus outside of the school. Mm. This is easy to say. We are learning that the more integrated it is. Uh, and our results are also showing that the more integrated it is with other, let's say, uh, contexts where the child is, the better results you get. Mm. The third thing that we're learning, which is a, a, a little bit of, uh, uh, what's the word in English, is uh, in a way we are doomed with this when you want to measure this right. and to, you know, <laughs> to prove that kids are evolving is that sometimes kids, they don't evolve. They devolve, they come backwards because the more you work this with them, the more aware they are yeah. about what does it really mean to be creative. If you spend two or three hours a week learning about creativity, practicing, thinking differently and making an effort on creativity, then at the end of the year, you'll, you'll self-assess yourself yeah. Much lower than you did. Yeah. This is the so Dunning, the Dunning Kruger effect where you, you know, exactly. the novice overestimates their ability. Exactly. Actually. That's yeah. why it is so, so important to triangulate as much as you can. So use right. other informants rather than only kids themselves. Mm. It's very important to do this. Very, very important. Because adults, they see things differently. They say, no, yeah. it's another person. It's another story. Mm. Uh, uh, doesn't matter what she or he feels about this, but... Um, we can see with our own eyes that thing, he's behaving differently or thinking differently or doing differently. Mm -hmm. And uh, a fourth one is about people. Um, well, this is not new. It's all in the books. But at the end of the day, you cannot promote social-emotional learning if you yourself are not quite literate in terms of your social, and your, your social skills and your emotional skills. Mm. And uh, we didn't start like that. We started focus on the child, right. and now and now, for instance, the uh, these projects they lasted for one, two, or three years. Not the intervention, because as I said, you could have in one year a lot of different interventions, small interventions. But uh, we are now coming. This next school year is the last school year where we have the network working. But we already closed an agreement with the governments, uh, and we are transforming these 100 stories into mm. training for oh, teachers of all levels, including universities, so oh. from, from zero to universities. 
And you know what? I changed my focus or we changed our focus here at the Gulbenki because I'm putting a lot of effort on developing the skills of the teachers themselves first. Right, right. And, uh, and of course, then sharing with them some, some good and bad lessons that we learned uh, with 50,000 kids uh, uh, in the country. Mm. But the focus, uh, you cannot do this. This is quite obvious. You cannot do this uh, besides teachers you can, and or parents. Mm. Wow, Pedro, that's so fascinating to hear where you've got up to um, in this work. And I mean, it really does, I think, remind me of just how human, I know it's obvious, but how human uh, education systems actually are. You know, they are quite inefficient because it's all about the relational aspect, about the human beings doing things. You know, you can't, you know, in this Zoom COVID world, you know, you can't just replicate the role of, you know, of a human teacher. It doesn't, it doesn't work because it hasn't worked yet. And people have been trying for decades to just say the computers will take the jobs, right? So everything seems to be augmented. So I also just want to, it's clearly just a great example of public-private partnerships at work, you know, kind of commissioning this research with the 100 academies and then being able to plug that back into the education system so that now the 1.2 million young people all will kind of in some ways be impacted by this work. It's really quite inspiring. So well done yeah. so far. Yeah, uh, <laughs> we, we are quite excited because yeah. one way of, you know, scaling this up that was in our own theory of change as a foundation, we thought, okay, so we have goodwill, mm-hmm. but no evidence. So let's create, the, let's take chance, advantage of the goodwill. Yeah. Let's put some evidence together with this. And in our own theory of change, we thought, okay, after a couple of years, I say three to four years, we will have the, the evidence to come to the government and say, listen, this, this is for you now. So mm. let's go. So this teacher training, uh, in the initial teacher training, but also uh, continuous professional development. So in both areas, we're doing this. Great. So in universities, but also in t- teachers, uh, we teachers that are already working. But uh, this was already in the map. What we didn't expect is that some of these projects are, you know, becoming quite pop, quite popular. <laughs> and we are quite excited because last uh, Saturday, uh, yeah. the, the, the Secretary of State for Education announced publicly that one of these under projects, it's going to be available in all the schools in the country. Wow. Just like that. Wow, that's amazing. That's cha- we, we change of scale. This. <laughs> that scale. <laughs> that scale. So he said, he, he, actually he invited schools. He said, if you want this, you go to the platform, you fill the form, and you'll have the training, you'll have the resources for free. You don't have to worry about it because we know that this particular project is going to change the way we are living. And the project is what, it's a quite unique project. It's called the, the Ubuntu Academies. Right. From the, the Ubuntu. African philosophy. Yes, Ubuntu, Ubuntu. Yeah, yes. Inspired on Nelson Mandela's legacy. I am because we are, I think. Is the, yeah, exactly. Are. That's, that's the motto. Yeah. I am because we are. And, um, and it's now present in, in, in more, over 50 nationalities around the world. It's a Portuguese project that has made its way around the world oh, oh wow and uh, uh, not 50 countries but 50 nationalities in terms of participants sure. it's a quite quite big big project and um, 
and it's going to be scaled up nationally, which is exciting for us because it's one of our hundred projects. Mm. Uh, it's so it's just really exciting to hear where where all this is going, Pedro. I I I, I want to go back to this idea that you know we can return to a school. Someone from 1921 comes into a school and goes, oh, yeah, I get this. You know, and as someone that has a keen interest in where we're going in education, you know, the need to visit the future so that we can act powerfully in the present, what would be your assessment on where we're going in education? Uh, if you were to, to try to describe, you know, the future of schools and of, uh, of universities, uh, what do you think that is? Yeah. You know, I've been asked, we all have been asked this question a lot of times uh, in the last, let's say, 10 years. And uh, I'm one of those who think that being a futurologist is a, it's a good profession because our, our common memory is really bad. <laughs> Otherwise, we wouldn't have wars and we wouldn't mm. elect people to some governments. So our <laughs> collective memory is really, really lousy. Yeah. So that's why the, the, the being a futurologist is quite a comfortable profession because you can say whatever you want. Nobody is coming back to you in three or four years' time. So I'm <laughs> the, the, one of those who believe that more than the, thinking about how is the future going to be, I like to, to change a little bit the question and think about how do I want this, the future of schools to be? How, do I, how would I like it to be? Hmm. And what can I do today to, to, to reach that. That's, I like to go that way. That's and, great. and I would say that uh, I would like to see the four pillars of education, not the education, the four pillars of schools changed. The first pillar is time. Uh, the second pillar is space. The third pillar is content. And the fourth pillar is relations and roles mm. of people. So the first one, time. Uh, we all assume that there is a certain age to learn and a certain age to replicate what you've learned. And I'd like that to see that changing very fast. Mm. Uh, secondly, we define within time, we define that... Um, there is a time of the day where you learn yeah. and there's a time of the day where you don't learn. <laughs> you, you're, you're, you're lazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's going to, I, I, I think, and I would like that to change. Yeah. Going to time to also time. We assume that there is a time where you want to study math because I say so. Mm. And uh, there is a time where you want to make to practice sports because I say so, and I can predict that in three months, Monday morning, you will want to learn math <laughs> and then sports and then physics. And I think that has to change. Yeah, yeah, great point. The fourth one within time is that I we all assumed that uh, everybody in a certain country learns at the same time, at the same rhythm, at the same pace, which is quite a very bizarre idea. Yeah. Uh, you don't think like that with anything else, anything else. But somehow we decided in the 17th century that we all start, at, in, our, in my country, we all start in September learning mm -hmm. and we all finish in June and then we can just 
do not learn from June to September, and then start learning again, which is strange. <laughs> I find it very strange. <laughs> so I'd say that this is one pillar that we have to, and, and then again, in my country, uh, we all decided that you will learn the content A for 45 minutes or 60 or 90. Right. Not 70, not 42, mm. not 58. Mm. This is it, which is very strange. Yeah, <laughs> very yeah. strange. Very arbitrary. So the yeah. use of time, I, I, I believe it has to change. And mm. the, the education will go on a more continuous and a more significant way. And in order to do so, one of the laws of the physics, which is T, time, has to be dealt differently. Yeah. The second one, second law of physics is space. Well, we assumed as a society that there is a place where you learn. Yeah. And that you don't learn in all other places. Then you also assume that within that place, there's also a particular place where you can learn. And then a place where you can eat. So when you eat, you don't learn. Mm. And a place where you can meet your, your, your mates. And when you meet your mates, you're not learning. And, and we call it school. It's a, it's a cluster of spaces. Mm. And that idea of a school being a cluster of spaces, I think it's the way to go. But the cluster of spaces are going to be, is going to be much more diverse and yeah. heterogeneous. And this old concept of communities, learning communities, I think it's going to get a new sense for us. Mm. It's going to make more and more sense because we are, we, we, we are going to recognize that we learn anywhere, anytime, anyhow. Mm. Secondly, we are going to learn that the, the, having a space, as it's, it's very important, a space for learning is very important as long as, as, as we assume that that is not the only place where we learn. And, all, all, and also that we assume that we can use that time in that space that we call today school. And I think schools are going to change a lot in terms of spaces. Um, we can use that uh, time and space uh, more um, differently. Mm. It's a time and space to meet, to create, to co-create, to, to criticize, to collaborate, mm. to be challenged, yeah. to certify what we learn, to challenge what we learn, to experiment, to practice. That will be the space, what we call school. But that mm. doesn't mean that there aren't more learning spaces yeah. in the communities that are managed. And this is, I think, it's a trend that are managed by people, other people rather than teachers. Yeah. So the role of educating is going to be, let's say, open sourced. Mm. But the role of challenging knowledge, the role of certifying knowledge is going to be kept by teachers. And I agree with it. I think yeah, that's the way to go. But the role of learning and teaching, it's, it's going to be quite different. Mm. So this is on uh, spaces. Then the third one is content. I've already spoke about that, the obesity. Yeah. I have four rules, four hours for content development. I've right. learned through my own experience. One is that uh, it has to, uh, content has to be rigorous. And when I mean rigorous, is in my country today, if you open the newspapers from last week, you will see a lot of 
a big discussion on the new uh, syllabus for mathematics. Wow. And there was a long, lot of discussion about, oh, this one is less rigorous than the, the one before. The one before was more demanding, more, com more, more complete, uh, more high stakes. And this one is lower stake. You're learning blah, blah, blah. This, all, this is all ideology. Right. And I'm not going into ideology. I'm going <laughs> into uh, what do we want out of the curriculum? Mm. And um, when I mean rigorous, the first R is rigorous. I mean uh, developing the capacity of kids to challenge the contents, either mm. the content they get from school and all the other contents they get. That's what I mean by rigorous, is to develop the the ability, the critical thinking, the ability, the skills to be rigorous with everything in your life, to be demanding, to effort, but also to, to challenge what you get and don't get, get it for granted. Yeah. So that's the first R. The second one is realistic. The, first, the second R. What I mean by realistic is that you cannot teach everything to everybody at the same time and then expect beautiful things to happen. Let's Let's learn with people from Singapore, where they changed the, the, the last reform on education. The motto was teach less, learn more. <laughs> and they're doing quite well. Yeah. Quite well with that change. So let's open our eyes. Mm. Instead of preaching, let's go to developing uh, kids. Mm. That's the second R, is to be realistic. The third R is to be relevant. And when I mean relevant, I know there's a big debate there also. When I mean relevant, I don't mean that you have to, you know, you have to adapt in a way that you only, you only mm -hmm. introduce content that kids know. Yeah. I'm totally against this idea because yeah. I think that's replicating social exclusion and poverty. Yeah. I think that's the role of school is to introduce content that they, don't, <laughs> they cannot access by themselves. That's the whole point of having a school. Great point. But the point is that it has, at the end of the day, even uh, if the content is not relevant for today, it has to be significant. Yeah. It has to be, you know, uh, uh, Hargreaves, Sandy Hargreaves has a beautiful sentence for this. He says, we're going from, teachers are, are moving from mastery to mystery because they don't master all knowledge any, anymore. They can, they can, you know, they, they can't fake anymore. They cannot, because kids, they know, they, they, have, they can Google it. Hmm. So it's not about mastering a lot of contents. It's about the capacity to create mystery around it. And that's what I mean by relevant, is the capacity to create mystery about learning, is the joy of learning, the, the joy of discovering new things. This is the role of school. Mm. And, um, and the fourth R is, I forgot the fourth R. <laughs> it doesn't matter. No, okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm totally, um, totally with you on this journey, though. I can just imagine how practical all these different aspects are. Yeah. Um, yeah. We can do. And the last, the last pillar, and, and to be uh, to finish this part, mm. is about roles and and um, uh, roles and and um, and different, um, um, let's say, uh, yeah, roles or? that different people play in the school. That's the fourth mm. pillar. Mm. And within this uh, pillar, I would say, as Argrif said, the role of teacher is going to change. But I, I, I would start by the role of the student. Mm. And here I'm not going to be very creative. It's all about, you know, uh, uh, agency. It's all about uh, choosing. Mm. 
Mm. It wonders me uh, how little, cho- how, how few choices kids yeah, do actually as, get- as they grow in school. It, it, it's yeah. incredible. In, mm. As adults, we would never accept it. Never yeah. Yeah. accept it that somebody else would make all the decisions for us. Mm. What to learn, how to learn, when to learn, what for. It's incredible. Yeah. So I would start there with participation, with choices. And as a result of that, roles will change. Mm. Yeah, the role of a teacher, for example, shifting to a, a learning guide or an architect, a, you know, an architect of a learning experience, for example, rather than just the transmitter of knowledge. Um, yeah, I think there's a risk there. And uh, um, sometimes these dichotomies are not helping us moving mm. forward because mm. teachers that know a lot of stuff, they're not very fond of the idea of not you know, teaching what they know. Yeah, that's and true. And what teachers we have today. So I think we have to be cautious. Again, this, ty- this, this aspect of teachers as facilitators, it is true, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm moderate there. I, mm. I believe that teachers, they do, have the, they do have the power to introduce new knowledge that mm. is not very... Because, you know, social media is not a democratic world. It's no. not a fair world. Yeah. And it's not a transparent world. There are a lot of interests hidden in Google mm. search, in, mm. yeah, uh, rhythm, in Facebook uh, popularities. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so we cannot be naive on that. Yeah. And I believe that teachers, they still have a role of introducing new knowledge, mm. new contents in different ways, of course, not, not preaching all the time, but they have this power, yeah. which is for me, this power is, is, is a safety net for democracy. Mm. If we lose that power, the power of teachers, our democracies will be at risk. And teachers have this power of bringing content that is not accessible for certain parts of the population of, or, or even for all the population. You think on history, recent history. You can tell this in different ways. And it's very important that different ways of history, different versions are taught. Yeah. So if you leave Google that part, then yeah. you'll have creationists and things like that be, be being very popular. Yeah. And we need somebody to say, no, 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 listen. There was a big bang, physics, you know, let's study this. There's something, <laughs> we need this. Yeah, so I, yeah. The, I believe that, yes, the role will change a lot. Yeah. But I don't, I, I like the idea, the expression of the architect, because mm. an architect designs the, the building plan, yeah. but then goes to the construction site. Uh-huh. That's an architect. Yeah. And he finishes job when people are living in the house. That's when mm. he finishes job, not when he finishes drawing. Yeah, that's such a great point, Pedro. Oh my gosh, that was fantastic. Thinking about the four different pillars, you know. Um, and I swear you're a physicist as well, maybe as a psychologist. I mean, you've got a lot of <laughs> physics scientists here. But, you know, looking at time, the pillar of time and how that will change, the pillar of space, the kind of the one of content and the idea of roles and responsibilities and how, how all of those four things kind of meld together into this emergent new space that is, you know, and a lot of a lot of the guests often talk about this idea of a learning ecosystem, and I think increasingly that's we move from the idea of an institutional school setting to a learning ecosystem. And you know, your points on anywhere, anytime, anyhow, um, beca- you know, come become really relevant as part of this connected space. Oh, so much to explore there, um, Pedro. I have a final question for you, which is. You know, with all the work that you've done, you know, um, at the ministry level now working, you know, with Gulbenkian Foundation and all these different academies, what is your take-home message? 
from where you sit? Um, I studied in a, well, part of my studies was on a religious Catholic school, uh, which was very fun. And uh, mm. once there was uh, one of the priests there, he told me something that really, I always think about this when I'm, as you've seen, I'm, I'm, I have a passion for education since I, I was a boy, <laughs> since I was yeah. a schoolboy. I Fantastic. remember coming home and, and talking to my parents, oh, I think that school should be like this and that, and my teacher should do like this and that. And I, don't, I don't agree, I'm going to propose this and that. Uh, and I, I think that everybody that loves schools or everybody that loves education mm. uh, is a little bit uh, skeptical and critical about it. And you've seen that I'm a little bit skeptical and critical. And I'm always try to be constructive. So my takeaway message would be something I learned with this priest is don't ever forget that when you point a problem, you point your finger to a problem, just like just like I've done, you have three fingers pointing backwards to you. So you have three times the responsibility to do something about it. And if you're religious, one finger finger is pointing upwards. But that if you're religious, if you're not, you have three fingers pointing at you. Mm. So um, it's in our hands, actually. This is going back to Mandela's and Ubuntu. It's really in our hands. We can do this. It's up, it's up to us, actually. Mm. Pedro Cunha, it's been a delight to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining us for the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Learning Future podcast. To find out more about our work, drop into thelearningfuture.com and follow us at Learning Future on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Here's to building a world of thriving learners together.